0: So the the whole world is obsessed with serial and making a murderer and the, the 75 different Law and & Order and CSI shows that are on TV. So this latest edition of the Minor League Baseball, the show before the show podcast, is all going to be Sam Dykstra telling us about jury duty. Hi, Sam.
1: Hi. Um, I guess this is going to be <laughs> the disappointing because I, yeah, I legally cannot say. Oh, come I, I, on! I know. Law. I've, I've been sworn and, like, I, I enjoy my... Free living, And I don't want to be, you know,
0: what a rip off be
1: thrown into jail myself for saying too many details about uh cases and whatnot. So. what
0: a champ, though, Sam Dykstra is on jury duty all week this week and still find a time to record the 42nd edition, the Jackie Robinson edition of the show before the show podcast. How's it been? Can you tell us how it's been at least? It's been it's been
1: interesting. Yeah. I'll say that much. Okay. And just to update people on uh, what's happened since the last podcast for our loyal listeners. I think we joked last week. We were like, we did it on Wednesday because Sam has to pop in on Thursday for jury duty, but he'll yeah. be back. Yeah, well, that's what we Well, I thought. got assigned to a two-week grand jury, <laughs> um, so I'm still in the midst of that, and I will still be in the midst when we uh, tape next week's show as well. So we thought this it was is... going to
0: be like Sam would show up. It would be like traffic court. It would take two hours.
1: Yeah, or like... you just show up <laughs> and like maybe you report, maybe you get added to a jury, maybe you don't. The good news is I did not get added to a 60-day jury. Um, which was a possibility. So only, only only these two weeks, and then I don't have to serve for eight years. That would so. be ridiculous.
0: Yeah, eight years? You get two weeks and then eight years off?
1: Yeah. That's so pretty uh, solid. That's a good trade. I'm proud to my uh, civic duty during the offseason. Um, yeah, That's a when, pretty good trade. Right. Yeah, I'll take it
0: like so. I would do that. Hey, so welcome in. It's the forty-second episode of the Minor League Baseball Podcast, the show before the show. I'm Tyler. He's Sam. We got a lot of stuff coming up for you today. Uh, as always, you can rate and subscribe and review the Show Before the Show podcast on iTunes. You can also find us at MILB.com. You can find RSS feeds and all the other pertinent information for uh, non iOS users. But if you do. Listen to the show before the show on uh, your iPad, your iPhone, your, your MacBook Pro, whatever it is. Uh, give us a rating. Give us a review. We've been looking for some new ones of those for a while, and uh, they're all good. The ones that we get are all good. Just uh, we need some more. So head on over and give us uh, some more of those whenever you get a chance. And thank you again for tuning in to uh, In the Doldrums of January. We're like in that stretch where it's like, ugh, man, it's gray. Everything's dead outside. It's like the worst. January and February are the worst. Yeah, there's a big storm coming. Yeah, you guys are going to get hammered.
1: Right. I don't want to say finally because I think I said there were no storms coming last January and then it was a horrid winter. So, yeah, we're getting to the point where uh, the snow is going to fall and then there's going to be no light for two months. But uh, once once we get through that, there will be baseball.
0: At least, uh, yeah, exactly. Baseball is the candle on the other end of that tunnel. And uh, so we're we're getting closer, ever closer. Minor leaguers report in uh, about five or six weeks or so. Major leaguers report in less than a month. So get excited. Pitchers and catchers reporting second and third week in February. Get pumped. It's very close. So let's dive in. Uh, Three strikes coming up first this week. Next, uh, after this uh, three-strike segment, we are going to talk a little bit about some of the initial top ten prospect releases that the MLB Pipeline guys have put out. Left-handed pitcher, right-handed pitcher, and catcher are already out, so we'll discuss those a little bit as well. And then... Kelsey Hennigan will join the show, one of our fearless uh, writers, members of this staff at MILB.com, talking about a really cool story that she put together on Houston Astros number 16 prospect, right hand pitcher Chris Davinsky, so we got a really good conversation with Kelsey coming up on that. That story is up on the site now as well, uh, but let's get started with some relatively big breaking news in the world of minor league baseball. Uh, today it became official. After 19 seasons, there will be no more Venezuelan summer league. One of the lowest levels uh, under the minor league baseball umbrella will be shuttered for 2016. Um, That league has been, I don't want to say falling apart, but it's been shrinking for a while for a ton of different reasons. None of them basically are baseball related, but Venezuela has been thrown into a whole lot of turmoil in recent seasons. Um, The league had just four teams last year after the uh, Chicago, the Seattle Mariners pulled their team ahead of 2015 Ahead of 2016, the Chicago Cubs have decided to pull their affiliate out of the VSL, so there will be no VSL in 2016. Um, This doesn't have a huge impact on American MILB fans because the product you're going to get is going to be the exact same. And even with the lower level organization teams, um, you know, short C, the Pioneer League, the Appalachian League, uh, those leagues more than likely not really going to see a huge influx of guys from these VSL teams. But what it will affect are the Dominican Summer League teams and the Gulf Coast League teams. And to an extent, some of the, the Arizona League teams, I would imagine, as well. Um, but this is, you know, kind of the, the closing of an era. And it's sad to see the way that this is, has turned down for Venezuela.
1: Yeah, and one thing I, I kinda keep coming back to when I'm I've been thinking about this today, is just the effect this will have on, on some of the kids. I mean, the Venezuelan League, the Dominican League, same way is that it it's a great way of a lot of these kids get signed, some for very, very little money, some for decently big money, but it's a good way of getting them into Pro Bowl, getting them wearing the you know, the Phillies, the Rays, the Tigers uniforms and feeling comfortable in their own land. You know, they know the area, they know the climate, they know all of that stuff, they know the currency. Um, so for the Venezuelan kids, and we know that, you know, there's been tons of really, really good Venezuelan players over the years, Miguel Cabrera, Felix Hernandez, you know, Bobby Abreu, Johan Santana, the list kind of goes on and on. Um, for the, the next generation of Venezuelan kids, um, they'll, they're going to have to immediately go elsewhere. And this is an opportunity that they just won't have anymore. Um, you know, that's not uh, that ha- that's true of a lot of kids. You know, all around the world. You know, Colombia, Panama, they never had minor league baseball leagues quite like the kids in Venezuela did. But this was an opportunity that's kind of gone by the wayside. You know, they, like you said, Tyler, they they'll get their chances. They'll go to the Dominican leagues or Gulf Coast and Arizona leagues. Um, So they'll have their chances, but it just won't be in their homeland.
0: And that's kind of what it comes down to. And Tim Brunswick, who is minor league baseball, vice president for baseball and business operations, said, quote, with the gradual departure of teams from the VSL in recent years and the fact that only three clubs plan to field teams in the league this year, the decision was made to suspend operations of the Venezuelan Summer League for the 2016 season. Several clubs that were formerly in the VSL will now field an extra team in the Dominican Summer League or Gulf Coast League to provide opportunities for their players to play. It's my understanding that most clubs will continue to operate academies and scout Venezuela, but there will not be a league in Venezuela this summer. End quote. That's kind of what it comes down to. These guys are not going to be losing the opportunity. But if you're 16 years old and you're getting your first taste of pro ball, do you want to do it on a a several-hour plane trip to go play in the Dominican Republic, come play in the U.S.? Or would it be easier for you, easier for your family to play at home? I mean, I think in a perfect world, nobody would have wanted to shutter the VSL, but so much has gone on in Venezuela. And according to this story, which is from our own Danny Wild, uh, really the key issues have been inflation, crime, corruption, and food shortages, especially... especially there's been some political upheaval. There was a big election just a couple of months ago um, in which people, I guess, sort of started feeling like maybe the paradigm was going to shift. But that's been a very tumultuous country for a very long time. And I think one of the interesting things that comes out of this is arguably – Baseball infrastructure is going to be shrinking when the interest in baseball is going to be expanding. And this is a story I read, I want to say, a couple of years ago now, uh, I believe by Ben Badler from Baseball America, who wrote that a lot of the growing thought in Venezuelan baseball is... Kids aren't really getting ahead by going to school, by going to college in Venezuela. You're not just getting out, graduating, getting a good job, and making something of yourself. That's not the way it's been there for the last several years. So with that, there seems to be a lot more interest in a country that used to formally emphasize those things. Now it seems like there's a lot more emphasis on... If you have athletic talent, pursue it. You can get a lot of money to leave the country and go play in the United States or go play elsewhere internationally. Uh, You can support a family. You can bring a family to wherever you are. So, it's a little bit weird in that maybe there's going to be an increased uh, flux of very talented Venezuelan kids toward playing baseball trying to play at a higher level, and now all of a sudden, they may not have the exact same resources uh, going forward to try to get those careers started. So, it's definitely not a perfect world situation. Uh, It's not something minor league baseball would have wanted to do in a, a much better situation but it is going to uh, really change the dynamic for how guys get into professional ball especially from Venezuela but like you said it'll affect you know kids from Panama kids from Colombia from other areas of that region of Latin America
1: yeah and, and one thing I do <clears throat> excuse me want to stress too is that you know I, I said this is kind of disappointing for the kids but um, that doesn't mean it's not Understand an understandable move. I mean, you talked about all the problems that Venezuela has had <clears throat> recently, and um, it, you mentioned Danny's story. Danny's story brings up how you know Wilson Ramos was abducted, you know, in, in front of his mother's house in Venezuela, and there, there's all this stuff that's gone on there, just in terms of safety, in terms of the economy. Um, you know, you can see why teams are leaving, um, and that's what's led to all all the rest. So I think. You know, teams just feel safer about their prospects, about people in their system, about the infrastructure that they would be building in places like the Dominican um, or, you know, Florida, Arizona, that kind of stuff. Um, So as, as disappointing as the move is, that doesn't mean it's not understandable, which I think this is as well.
0: And it's definitely not something that's just been limited to the last few years either. In September two thousand four, Ugetherbina's mother was kidnapped. People might remember that uh, right. back when yeah. he was with, I believe at the time, Ugi was with the Detroit Tigers. I want to say, uh, but he uh, his mother was kidnapped. His family didn't pay a ransom. She was later rescued. But it's something that's been going on for a long time. And so you hope that you know eventually down the road we'll see a reestablishment of that league, and that something like that would not be uncommon in a circumstance like this. But uh, one of the end of an era, uh, one of the eras coming to a close um, in latin american baseball due to um, you know some things that are very much out of the control of the baseball world by the way that does not affect the um, lvbp if you've ever followed off-season baseball the venezuelan professional baseball league um, that's kind of their main league uh, and that is a, a winter league from the northern hemisphere perspective it's an off-season league and that's where a lot of those guys go to play over the off-season a lot of really talented venezuelan ball players that's not affected by this so just a clarification there there um strike two prospect projections continue despite grand jury assignments sam dykes are still just dropping prospect projections national league east take it away
1: yeah so what i wanted to focus on for this one um you know the the kind of obvious rookie projection that i think a lot of people were looking for in this um is a guy who i think might be the leading contender for an nl Uh, Rookie of the Year. It's between him and probably Corey Seager, you know, just off the bat. Um, Steven Matz in the Mets system. Um, No surprise there that, you know, Steamer really likes his projections for next year. They got him for a three-five-nine ERA, 8.8 strikeouts for nine innings, and a three-war over 200 innings. I think the Mets would be very happy with that out of, you know, their top prospect out of one of the top left-handed pitchers, pitching prospects in the game. Um, You know, a guy who pitched in the postseason last year, uh, you know, very exciting, very exciting part of that really young Mets uh, rotation going forward, um, excluding Bartolo Colon, obviously, the very not young member of that rotation that leads to start until Zach Wheeler gets healthy. But, um, you know, Matt's the, the projections like him to be just as good next year as we I think we were all thinking. But the more interesting one for me, and the thing I kind of led this with, <clears throat> was how are the Nats going to handle... Trey Turner and the shortstop position um, going into what is obviously his first full year with the nationals. He was involved in that three team trade between the Rays nationals and Padres last offseason. Couldn't be moved until June because of a now defunct rule about trading players in their draft years. Um, So now, you know, he he tore up between, you know, double a San Antonio, uh, you know, played at double a Harrisburg and triple a Syracuse last year, got a, Decently long cup of coffee with the Nationals at the end of the last year, um, but didn't get that regular playing time at short or second. Um, they wanted to play him in the middle of the infield. Uh, so going forward for next year, um, Steamer actually does think he'll do very well. One thing we know about Turner, he's very fast. Uh, I think he's got a 75-grade, the twenty-eighty scale for his run tool. Uh, Steamer has him for 23 steals over a full season. Um, they have him for a 2.2 war and the interesting note about that war is that it is higher than either Danny Espinosa or Stephen Drew um too much more veteran members of the Nationals infield um, who are kind of competing for that shortstop job uh you know talking to some people in the national system i think they're all excited for what they have in Turner um they all of them said he's going to be part of the competition um come this spring they definitely want him to go and take that uh opportunity and He'll get the chance to win the major league spot. I think the most likely thing that is going to happen is he's probably going to be sent back to Syracuse to start the year just because uh, in terms of veteran moves and he has options left, obviously. um, So that'll be easy. It'll be easier to get him playing time there. He'll be the Chiefs' number one starting shortstop no matter what. Uh, So Turner is definitely one to watch this spring in terms of that battle um, at the shortstop position for the Nationals. Uh, they they def the the projection system again that we use likes him more than you know Danny Espinosa or Steven Drew um, but we'll have to see what you know first year Nationals manager Dusty Baker thinks uh, in that debate when he gets to see all those guys in the same spot.
0: That division, I mean, for a while has felt down, but that there is a whole lot of excitement in that division for the next five years or so. I mean, that right now, if you had to name, I mean, obviously the NL Central, we know how loaded that is. And there's a lot of talent, a lot of other systems across baseball, but there may not be a better, if you had to rank division by division, I don't think anybody has brighter futures than the five teams in the NL East combined collectively.
1: Yeah. Well, the interesting thing for me, at least from our perspective, is that, yes, we have the Mets and the... Nationals, who are both very, very good teams I think right now, um, certainly have playoff aspirations both of which can reasonably believe that they have a chance to compete for a World Series title this year but then, looking at this from a prospect's point of view, you also have the Braves and uh, the Phillies in that in that as well, so going through these projections it just makes it so interesting to think what would J.P. Crawford do if he was in the majors this whole year, um, you know, what about Mark Appel versus Jake Thompson Uh, What about Jorge Alfaro in his first full year? You know, so there's a lot to chew on in terms of just young talent in this division as well. It's not just I think the NL Central is very top heavy, uh, you know, between the Cubs, the Pirates and the uh, Cardinals. Those are all interesting teams, less interesting systems. This NL East has a mix of a good mix of that both. I think
0: prospect projections continuing to roll out over the next, what will that be, four weeks now?
1: Yep, so this week coming up is uh, AL Central.
0: So everybody... AL fans, Central.
1: AL Central teams can have that look to look forward to. Um, specifically, the Twins. We like talking about the Twin system a lot because there's a lot of talent there. There's a lot of Major League-ready talent, so that'll be, uh, I think, the focus of this one coming up next Monday.
0: So keep an eye out for those, which will be coming out on Mondays for the next four weeks, leading us up to pitchers and catchers reporting for spring training. And we'll uh, get to strike three, which is a uh, sort of an off the field story, which is about the field itself. There's been a bad drought in California, as we know for years now, uh, about five years entering the fifth year. Now of a statewide drought is the golden state. And that has affected pretty much every walk of life in California. And Baseball teams by far uh, are not removed from that. I mean, that's a, a pretty obvious uh, thing that has cut into the way that you would ordinarily operate an organization if you're a minor league baseball team and a major league baseball team for that matter. Our own Josh Jackson put together a really, really good, interesting story on what California teams are doing to really battle this drought, but also embrace the idea of being good stewards, of being conservationists, of being members of the community who are not irresponsible in the way they handle this drought. This is a really cool story, and it's one of those things, we'll talk about this with Kelsey later, but I love this time of year from our perspective, because we get to branch out and do so many cool ideas for stories, so many creative things, anything that we think of that we know we can make into a story, we would pretty much get the green light to go for it. And this is one of the neatest ideas for a story that I would never have really thought about diving into the way that teams are able to not just deal with this but try to thrive on a very difficult situation
1: yeah because i mean think about when you think of a baseball diamond the first thing you think of is probably just green you know as far as you can see and then when as you mentioned the problem with california is just they've had so much drought they've had executive orders from the Governor saying how much water you're allowed to use. You know, we were joking before when we were coming up with where we were deciding that we were going to talk about this story. You know, there was even Tom Selleck got in trouble for, you know, bringing water over county lines. It was, you know, it's been in the news for a while now. uh, But now we get to kind of focus on what that specifically means for minor league teams. And I I really like this tidbit that Josh included about Fresno. Uh, You know, Fresno Grizzlies, they're part of California, they're in the Central Valley. Uh, but to those who don't understand, somebody like me necessarily, you know, reading the story, I didn't know this off the top of my head. Uh, Central Valley is kind of the agricultural center of, you know, such a big state like California. Um, so what the Grizzly general manager told Josh, uh, I'll just read it here for you. A big chunk of our fan base, our corporate sponsors, our season ticket holders, if they're not farmers or in an ag-related business, they're close to people who are. In our market, we've known we needed to be extra conscious of water usage. Being kind, kind of the fruit basket of America, we've had to be mindful that something that has a big impact, if not the biggest in the Central Valley, is water shortages. We didn't want to contribute to that. So it's not only just are we going to be able to water the field, it's are we shoving it in the, fan, the faces of our fans that we're using all this water. They, they, there's so much layers to this in terms of just keeping the grass green.
0: And it's not something that I think, is going to get much better. I mean, droughts break, and eventually it's been a, a pretty wet winter in a lot of parts of California, and that helps. But I don't think it's a situation where we're going to look back a few years from now and think, oh, man, we're all just, we're for lack of a better term, we're all just swimming in the water we get to use uh, for all these fields. So it's good for these teams to be able to adapt and realize that, you know, maybe this is the way it's going to be for a while. Um, and it, what's really interesting in Josh's story is the different modes of feedback that groundskeepers are able to get um, from things that they can use, whether it's irrigation systems or just the kind of the way that they, um, I guess, analyze a field and how it's doing in a given time. Um, But even, you know, from the what time of day it is, what the temperature is outside, what the wind conditions are like, what makes it the best time of day to water a field. It's really cool. It's a really interesting story. So it's up now on MILB.com. Really, really interesting stuff from Josh Jackson. And uh, as always, interesting stuff from Josh Jackson one of the best and another one of the best which we have coming up a little bit later on is kelsey hennigan we'll get to her story about chris Devensky but before that we're going to talk a little top 10 some of the early picks of the best prospects of baseball from mlb pipeline next <laughs> Our good pals over at MLB Pipeline are getting set for 2016 with uh, some of the most highly anticipated work that they do all year, which is the release of the top ten prospects at every position throughout minor league baseball. Got things started this week with the list of right-handed pitchers followed by left-handed pitchers followed by catchers. And we're going to start, Sam, with uh, the right-handed hurlers from the MLB Pipeline. Guys, let's run through the top ten very quickly. Number one, no surprise is Lucas Giolito. Right. Friend of the podcast, all world, everything. Friend of the podcast, Lucas Giolito of the Washington Nationals organization. Number two is Tyler Glassnow, right-hander in the Pittsburgh Pirates system. And it's Alex Reyes in the St. Louis Cardinals, Jose Barrios of the Minnesota Twins, Jose De Leon, the right-hander in the Los Angeles Dodgers system. John Gray, the Colorado Rockies righty, Robert Stevenson, the uh, former Louisville bat, a Cincinnati Reds right-hander who is one of the interesting guys on this list. And we'll kind of talk about um, you know the guys that really stand out to us in this. Dylan Tate, a very young one. And The Texas Rangers organization comes in eighth. He was the fourth overall pick last year. Carson Fulmer was the eighth overall pick last year in the White Sox system. He's number nine. And Anderson Espinosa, another young guy, just 17 years old, signed in 2014 by the Red Sox. He's number 10. Who stands out to you on this list?
1: Yeah, I'll actually start there at the bottom just because he is so young. And Anderson Espinosa did a tool shed on him last year. Uh, just because he caught my eye, and there were so many people talking about him lighting up the gun, you know, between the DSL made the jump to the GCL last year as a teenager. Uh, we were talking earlier in the show about, you know, you want to find comfort for guys wh- while they're so young. Um, you yeah, know, this was a guy who just turned 17 in March, but they the Red Sox sent him from his native land of Venezuela, put him in the DSL, which uh, looked really, really good in a very short time there, made four starts there. Struck out 21 batters in 15 innings, and they decided, you know what, this this teenager, this young kid, uh, he's ready for, for stateside. I mean, he's ready to, to make the jump to the Gulf Coast League. Pitched really, really well there. Uh, 10 starts, 40 innings, 40 strikeouts, uh, 0.68 ERA. I mean, obviously, this is kind of a smaller sample, only pitched about four innings a start, but you know, this was a guy who being so young his fastball was just so electric uh and he didn't really need to use too many other pitches um just being at at those lower levels um so it's exciting to see a guy who's this young this low part of that is just ceiling i mean a lot of what what it is with espinoza at this point is just straight projection he's six feet 160 um so he's not very tall he's not going to get too much taller than that he might have to grow out a little bit everybody likes to use the pedro comp because he's Wearing red socks across his chest, and he's kind of small. Um, we'll see how that works out. You, you hate to put that on a seventeen-year-old. Hey, your comp is a, a you know Hall of Fame pitcher
0: and all-world everything.
1: Yeah, one of the most beloved pitchers of the last you know twenty, thirty years. But you know that's the easy comp for him. Um, or you know easy, lazy, whatever you want to use there. But it is exciting to see him put up in that same top ten with guys you know we've we've known for years now. And, Angelio Glass, now Reyes Barrios, down the list you already mentioned. So we'll, we'll, it'll be interesting to see where he goes from here. He certainly could have rocket fuel. I mean, if he does really well, I think they're going to send him to Greenville to, to start this year, get him full-season ball, kind of do, do what they did with Rafael Devers last year, obviously different position being a pitcher, but really limit his innings. But he seems ready for full-season ball. Uh, you know, If he can perform really well there, you know, we're, we'll be talking about him as a top five right-handed pitcher at the end of the year, right-handed pitching prospect at the end of the year, rather than just number 10.
0: Um, one of the guys who stands out to me... Is uh, and I mean, you know, there there are guys on this list who are either major league commodities, basically proven major league commodities uh, in the offing or not. I mean, we know Lucas Giolito and Tyler Glass now are really knocking on the doorstep. Uh, Jose Barrios is the same way. I really like Dylan Tate, uh, who was the Texas Rangers' first round pick last year, fourth overall. He's 21 years old. Um, He kind of exploded onto the scene as a junior after moving into the rotation at UC Santa Barbara. uh, Before that, really, I think, was kind of a lesser-known skill set. He was a bullpen guy, was really, really good in relief uh, for UC Santa Barbara, pitched for the U.S. Collegiate National Team as a sophomore. But when he got into the rotation as a junior, that's when it really looked like he was going to be able to make some noise. Um, Really, really good fastball, uh, which can get to 98 miles an hour. Good slider, 85 to 89, according to MLB Pipeline. But what I like about him was jumps right in, makes six starts, doesn't throw a ton of innings, but gets that first professional experience under his belt and then gets into the offseason resting, ready to go for his first full pro season. I love seeing that from guys who come out of the draft. When you can come right in, sign, get started, get the experience under your belt, and then all of a sudden shut it down. It's a long college season. He only threw nine total professional innings. He actually made six starts, only threw nine innings across two levels. He pitched for Spokane in the Northwest League and for Hickory in the South Atlantic League. He only goes nine total innings, but he only gives up three hits. ERA of one even, only gave up a single run, struck out eight, walked three. Um, I really like Dylan Tate because Texas seems so committed to making sure they brought him in, he's the fourth overall pick. Got a boatload of money to get signed. Uh, I feel like he could rise pretty quickly, similarly to what he did in college, where it seems like just all of a sudden one day he was one of the guys you talked about as one of the best talents in the country collegiately. I really like that about him. I feel like not many people know his name right now, but soon he's going to be one of the guys you talk about that way.
1: Yeah, and the interesting to see thing to see will be how they kind of handle his workload. I mean, you mentioned two years ago he was just a reliever uh you know this year makes the move to the starting rotation with the gauchos uh you know what's going to happen now now they're going to try to add on even more innings what exactly are they going to do with him to make sure he doesn't overthrow his arm his shoulder elbow all those issues we always talk about with pitching injuries um so yeah they they certainly have a good commodity on their hands how they use them i'm sure it's going to be cautiously mentioned all the money they've invested in him the high pick they've invested in him um, but there's so much going on with just Tate alone. Uh, his stuff certainly is exciting, um, so we'll see what happens with him once he gets really sinks his teeth in the pro ball.
0: Left-handed pitchers, Sam, uh, 1 through 10, they look like this. Julio Urias, not a question there, number one or number two. You knew he was going to be at the top of the list. You knew Blake Snell was going to be at the top of the list as well. Urias with the Dodgers, Snell with the Rays, he is number two. Then it's Steven Matz, who is as close to being a graduated prospect as anybody on this list, or any of these lists will be. Sean Newcomb in the now Brave system, formerly of the Angels, he's at number four. Tyler J, another really, really young kid in a draft selection, just a couple of picks behind uh, the fourth overall pick Dylan Tate Tyler J went sixth overall to the Twins Josh Hader in the Milwaukee Brewers organization spent last season with AA Biloxi Cody Reed another starter in the red system Ironically, he ranks seventh there uh, from left-handed pitching prospects. Robert Stevenson in the red system, ranked number seven for right-handed prospects. Sean Manaya now with the Oakland Athletics, of course, a former first-round pick of the Kansas City Royals. Amir Garrett had a real big breakout 2015 in the red system. And Colby Allard in the Braves system, yet another 2015 draft pick. Uh, lefties, who do you like?
1: Yeah, for me, just looking at this list, you know, I think the top four, are very, very good, and I think there's a severe drop-off from there. I mean, you're talking about a group of Uriah, Snell, Mats, and Newcomb. Um, I think if you ranked any of those four in any order, I, I don't know if I'd have too big a problem. I mean, we can nitpick here and there. Um, Snell in front of Matts is an interesting uh, move there for me. I just think, you talked before, Matts you know, already has that major league experience, pitched very well for the Mets last year, has pitched very well at all levels. Um has that triple A track record. Snell looked great last year, obviously was the minor league pitcher of the year, um by you know, any number of media, um including ourselves. Uh and then Newcomb has, you know, his walk issues, but obviously electric stuff and uh just racked up strikeouts in his first year and Urias, we've been talking about for a while now, probably has the highest ceiling of of this group, um and is the youngest amongst that four. Uh, I think if you put any of those four in any order, it would have been okay. Um I I I might make the argument for Matt's first just because I I really like having major league experience having successful ma- major league experience and that's something he's done uh over the others I, his ceiling might not be as high as yours but uh just what he's done so far I would be I I would feel more solid about having him in an organization than necessarily Urias but you know higher ceilings normally went out on these lists and I think that's kind of how it's worked here uh,
0: before I get to my favorite lefties um, I just want to know what is Julio going to do on, on August 12th of this year he turns 20 I
1: thought this the other day I'll let you yeah thought, but I his thought Twitter the other
0: handle other is at the teenager 7 because that's how we've all known him for so long like oh you got to see this teenager in the Dodger system this teenager young teen here 17 <laughs> years old whatever it is he's going to be 20 soon
1: Well, it's it's probably probably just going to make it Millennial Seven, I guess. I don't know.
0: (laughs) The I get all that seven. uh,
1: Yeah, Dodgers Millennial Seven. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> um, yeah, I agree with the the top four, and uh, it's pretty – when you look at Steven Matz's numbers, you really realize how good he was at basically every stop last year, or at least the two that really mattered with Las Vegas and with the Mets at the major league level. Um, Snell and Urias, there's, you can't go wrong with either of those guys. And Newcomb, I'm going to be very anxious to see what he does in a new system, um, especially with the way we know – The Braves can develop arms. So that's going to be a lot of fun to watch. The guy who I have an eye on on this list is Sean Mania, And I, I think that he, in large part, was kind of knocked down over the last couple of seasons because he did not and just break out the way that most people expected him to. He was a competitive balance pick for the Royals, the 34th overall selection back in 2013. Came out of Indiana State. Looked like he was going to go maybe number one overall and then had a hip injury, uh, partially torn labrum, I think it was, in Indiana State in his junior season. Fell to 34th overall, got to the Royals, but he just never dominated and then battled injuries the beginning of 2015, had an abdominal strain, a groin strain, was really good after he went to Oakland uh, in the trade in July for Double A Midland in the Texas League, 6-0 record, 1.90 ERA. That was fantastic. But what I liked about Sean Minaya was how well he did in the Arizona Fall League. And I talked to him when I was down in Phoenix and he said the thing that he was testing out in the AFL was a new grip on his changeup and that was out of all of his offerings That was his lowest graded one, a 65 graded fastball, 55 slider, and a 50 changeup. And he said he knew he was going to have to take some lumps with it, but he really felt confident about the fact that once he got it down, he would have a lot more confidence in that pitch. To be a successful major league starter, you need to have that effective three pitch or more mix. You can't go out there with a good fastball or great fastball, a good slider, and a changeup that everybody knows you're not going to offer, you're not even really going to show. You have to have that third dimension. That's what excites me about Sean. Mania. if I'm an A's fan looking for something to be pumped up about for his career, I think that's what gets me to the level where, yeah, we got a first round pick. A guy was at one time a candidate to go first overall. I just feel like that is the final piece of the puzzle uh, to come into line for him. Now, is he a frontline major league starter? I don't know. I don't think so. He's probably more of a mid rotation guy, but I really like that about Manaya that he seems open to doing whatever it takes um, to get himself to, what people really forecasted for him. And not only that, phenomenal head of hair. Did you see the thing when he was at the, I believe he was at the, uh, the rookie uh, business development, the thing that Major League Baseball put on for players uh, a couple of weeks ago, and the hair now is like, he's got like a helmet, like this giant mass of curly, it's amazing.
1: It's well, amazing. Oh, yeah, no, I'm looking at it now. That is, that looks like a wig. It's incredible. I know. It, it looks a, like a 70s superhero. Right. That's kind of the danger of baseball players wearing hats. (laughs) uh, In some cases, I wish that they didn't have to because I think seeing their hair flow. We can appreciate it. Bryce Harper is one of those people. I think his hair. Absolutely. We would all be more appreciative and uh, baseball might get slightly higher ratings. But with Sean Manea and that hair on the mound, that that would be something.
0: There's not much as intimidating as that.
1: Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Maybe it's harder to track the ball because you're just focusing on his follicles.
0: Amir Garrett, another guy I think we both really like. Uh, he comes in number nine on this list. Uh, fantastic season last year. 2.44 ERA and 140 and a third innings over 26 starts for Class A Advanced Dayton. So keep an eye on Amir Garrett as well. And last but not least, the most recently released of the top 10 catching pro, or the top 10 prospects by position is catching prospects going into the 2016 season. And here they are. Wilson Contreras leads things off. The Cubs prospect. Then it's Gary Sanchez. We talked a little bit about Gary Sanchez in the prospect projections conversation last week in the Yankee system. Jorge Alfaro, who's going to be an interesting guy to talk about because we didn't see much of him last year because of an injury in June. But a very, very exciting talent. Reese McGuire, Pittsburgh Pirates prospect, friend of the podcast. Tyler Stevenson in the Reds organization. Elias Diaz, uh, number six in the Pirates system. Dom Nunez in the Rockies system. Jacob Nottingham. We had a Q&A with Jacob that Kelsey did, uh, the now A's prospect, formerly an Astros prospect. Uh, he checks in at number eight. Max Pentecost, who is another one who we have not seen a lot about um, in his professional career so far. He's only played 25 games, and he still comes in as the number nine ranked catching prospect in baseball. And then Aramis Garcia in the Giants system uh, catching prospects. This is a, an interesting group because there are a lot of question marks here, but there's a lot of really high ceiling here.
1: Yeah. The first thing that jumped out to me, um, I think, is that Wilson Contreras got bumped up so high. I mean, I don't think he was really considered a top 10 prospect at the catching position coming into this year. Obviously tore it up at Tennessee, 333 average, uh, OBP above 400, 891 OPS. Uh, you know, became a really, really interesting bat, um in the Cubs system. And Feels like he could be almost not a missing piece as, as, far, as far as the Cubs go, but they just have so much young talent at all the other positions. I think he's now the young talent at the catcher position. Um, it seems like they've moved away, obviously, from Kyle Schwarber, necessarily having a near-term future at catcher. Uh, so Wilson Contreras could be just another strong piece for the Cubs going forward and shows you why they're willing to make the splash for Jason Hayward. Um, because I think they just know that they're not going to be paying that much money for their really, really high end young talent going forward that they can go splash and make, you know, sign the best position player available. Um, so Contreras seeing him at the top here is really interesting. Um, another interesting thing for me is that the Pirates have two of the top six guys here, uh, Reese McGuire and Elias, Elias Diaz. Uh, both guys are, are defensive first. Uh, Diaz. Uh, played in a couple of games of the Pirates last year, um, is going to be behind Francisco Cervelli this year, who's obviously a good defensive catcher in his own right in the Pirate system. Um, so both of those guys will be given time to develop. For Diaz, he's 20, 25 years old, just turned 25 in November. Um, so the clock's taken a little bit of, like, for him, but uh, you know, if he can be a solid bat, I don't know if he's going to squeeze Cervelli out of the lineup, but he, he will certainly be a... Interesting backup option for them, um, specifically defensively i don't think they'll have much to worry about there so if you're the pirates if you're the pirates, if you're a pirates fan, you must really, really like this list. I would imagine.
0: Uh, The two guys who stand out to me maybe are because of those injury question marks Jorge Alfaro, I think is going to be fine. Ankle surgery in June um, that kind of took his 2015 season off track, but uh, one of the best all around catching talents in baseball. And I think had he played a full season, maybe he's number two or number one on this list. Um, He comes out of Columbia was signed by the Rangers in 2010 and has really come a long way since he debuted. I remember when the Rangers signed him, it was one of those things where it was like, yeah, I mean the sky's the limit because the tools are all there, but there is a lot of work that needs to be done and I think still to a certain extent he's raw in some areas, especially defensively but um, there's so much talent there there's so much potential there that it's almost like you just have to wait for the the mental ability to catch up to the physical talent it's like the it's like the technology catching up when when uh, what's his face who made Titanic when he made avatar james James Cameron. Cameron. James cameron he talked about how uh he always wanted to make the movie avatar but he had to wait for the technology of animation to catch up i always remember that interview hearing about that and thinking that's insane but i think that applies to a lot of really athletic guys you almost have to wait for that side of your persona to catch up to your physical talent i don't know if that makes any sense does that make any sense sam it makes sense but I, i'm just I, making I, stuff up
1: no that what you say makes sense i, just, <laughs> I don't believe james cameron <laughs> but that's exactly for a different podcasts. Oh, okay. But that's true. It definitely true. makes sense. Like, there are certain things that need to catch up to others. Um, and with Alfaro, I think that's certainly the case. Um, we'll see if the Phillies got, you know, bought him at the right time. Maybe they yeah. bought kind of low yeah. on him and the Rangers saw something they didn't like from him, namely the injuries last year. Um, and, you know, the Phillies are going to have to build up their own, their own system and that's what they're trying to do. And maybe he's the catcher of the future. Um, I, I kind of wrote about that a little bit in NL East projections last week. Um, you know they're catching options right now don't really seem anything more than just placeholders, so they would love for El Faro to go and just run and take that job this year as part of what what should be a very very fun and interesting uh Lehigh valley team
0: he was a nicole hamill's trade of course and uh the other guy really stands out to me is max pentecost um and i think the reason again is because of really his absence so far from professional baseball and the question marks that surround him as to what he's going to look like when he gets back on a field regularly he was the 11th overall pick out of Kennesaw State back in 2014 by the Blue Jays. But since then, he's only played in 25 games. All of them were in that debut season in 2014. They're really, really good 25 games. He played for rookie-level Bluefield, and then Class A short season, Vancouver in the Northwest League, batted slash line 324, 330, 419. Really good numbers, but that's all we've seen from him he had surgery to repair a partially torn right labrum in october of that year had a cleanup procedure last spring spring of 2015 which wiped out his entire 2015 season so we're really going on i mean two one and a half seasons professionally this will be his second full season in pro ball and we really don't know what to expect from max pentecost in addition to that labrum surgery shoulder surgery is nothing to sneeze at I mean that how that affects him as a receiver, as a guy who can block and can bounce up and make quick throws, what it means for his arm strength trying to cut down runners, um, that all remains to be seen. So that definitely, the athleticism and the potential certainly land him on this list, but he, we don't know what, what the Blue Jays have in Max Pentecost yet, which is, I think, on, on the one hand, it's exciting because maybe we're finally going to see that in 2016. On the other hand, I think people are probably a little bit apprehensive about that.
1: Yeah, and that's what leads him to number nine as opposed to, you know, jumping over Don Nunez or Jacob Nottingham. Um, you know, the ceiling is so high, but the question marks are also so big and that's drags him to the bottom of the list. But, you know, that's, that's why they make these and we'll see if he has the chance to, uh, to climb up it and move past some of these guys, uh, this year.
0: Nunez a converted infielder I know the Rockies are really really high on him Jacob Nottingham now with the A's we had a Q&A with him on the site that Kelsey did again as I mentioned you can check that out at MILB.com as well and speaking of Kelsey Hennigan that's next. Another really good piece that went up on the site this week. Actually, went up today. We're recording on Thursday. You're probably hearing this on Friday or over the weekend. Uh, Chris Davinsky in the Houston Astros system, the number 16-ranked prospect in that talent-laden organization. Really interesting story about his baseball upbringing, his relationship with his father. Um, growing up in, in not the easiest, not the, the sweetest locales uh, as a kid, but what got him through was baseball. And now, on the doorstep of the major leagues, and we'll hear from Kelsey See on her story on Chris Dovinsky coming up next. We are kind of past the, uh, the postseason season um, slate of content that we put together for MILB.com. We're past organization All-Stars and you know naming some of our top performers of the year. And this is one of my favorite times of the year because we get to dive into stories, which is really cool. And Kelsey Hannigan joins us, one of our writers on the site, one of our best writers on the site, as everyone is. And uh, this is a really cool story. Kelsey, you got to talk to Chris Davinsky, who is the number 16 prospect in the Houston Astros organization. First of all, welcome back to the show. I think you're one of our, uh, our first-time returning writers
2: all right I'll take it yeah. yeah yeah I was on right after I left El Paso and yeah. I'm back talking about another astro
0: which is very cool because that kind of ties into where this story for Chris Devensky ends up so let's talk about that here in a few but kind of just give me the uh I mean obviously you got to sort of bear witness to the culmination of this story in 2015 for Chris but his story is is crazy and especially the way last season went but take us through kind of you know how the story all came together and, and what made you want to cover Chris and, and tell his story
2: Yeah, it actually kind of begins at the end, like you said. uh, When I was in El Paso for the AAA National Championship, I met Chris because he uh, was the starting pitcher. And I talked to him a little bit. He's a very interesting, pensive guy. And definitely you could tell, like, when he's just staring off that he's really thinking about something. And just when I was talking to him, I was asking about what it was like to pitch in that game and to do so well. Um, And he was just talking about all that he'd had to overcome. And I was really curious about that. Obviously, I didn't have time to dive into that. Right after the game and everything, but I kept kind of coming back to this idea of like how much he's had to overcome and I'm sure there's a lot of players who have stories similar to Chris. And so when it became now, like you said, feature time of the offseason, I decided to go back to Chris and talk to him um, and kind of really dive into his story. And it was even more incredible than I could have imagined.
0: Chris, uh, coming out of high school, ended up playing as a two-way player at Golden West Junior College in Huntington Beach, California. Then he transfers to Cal State Fullerton. Um, But his background is not, he's not one of the guys who you look at as, oh, California kid, probably grew up pretty well off, went to a really good high school and all that kind of thing. He's definitely a much different story than a lot of those guys that we hear about.
2: Right, especially as like he's from Orange County and you have the perception of a TV show or anything like that. But right. he's from Santa Ana, which in his area, which he said is a really tough area that he grew up in, and there was a lot of stuff like gangs and drugs that were just around him. And he even said it himself. It was like calling him every day. But the one thing that kind of kept him straight was baseball. It wasn't just that he liked the sport or he wanted to just be involved. It was that it really kept him on the straight and narrow.
0: So for a kid like that, Grow up, and actually, as a kid, he used to go to games at Cal State Fullerton, uh, and then later on, he's playing in that program, which is one of the you know most hallowed programs in uh, in all of college baseball. Gets drafted by the White Sox. He's eventually shipped in a trade to the Astros. But when you look at his numbers early on in his minor league career, I mean, you could tell that he was a guy really struggling to find his way, and it seems like things really all turned a corner for him. In 2013, really, really struggled with Class A Advanced Lancaster. Gets sent down to Quad Cities, full season Class A, mm-hmm. and at that point, you're looking at a guy who, I mean, by no stretch is is an old guy, but at 22, 23 mm-hmm. years old, you're getting a little old for that Midwest league level. And then all of a sudden, it seems like something clicked. What was the big change for him uh, when he really started to get things figured out, especially into 2014?
2: Yeah, I think that how bad he did, I guess, in 2013, he said it really lit a fire in him and really just made everything just kind of click for him he just was driven to never have that terrible feeling of having an or A or being demoted again and he just fought back um like he had done when he was a kid um and it was also just on the baseball side of things it was his fastball command that began to click for him you know he's always had a good change up i think his coach rodney lanaris referred to it as a Bugs bunny change up yeah it just it's so slow and you just keep missing it But um, So the fastball command was the thing that really needed to click for him, and it finally did come together.
0: One of the neat things, too, is the relationship that Chris has with his father, Mike, and that's kind of threaded throughout your story, um, which, again, is up on MILB.com right now. Um, And Mike is... As so many fathers are, one of the big influences, obviously, on Chris in terms of, uh, you know, his love of baseball and all that kind of stuff. But you can tell also his work ethic. And Rodney, Rodney Lenaris, who was his manager with Class A Advanced Lancaster and then later with Double A Corpus Christi, said, is one of the hardest workers I've ever had as a pitcher. And I think a lot of that, you can tell throughout the story, is due to his father, his relationship with his father. He used to go to work and help his father out with his, his work at a moving company. Um, what was that like, getting a chance to talk to, you know, both Chris and his dad about their relationship?
2: Yeah, it was awesome. just talking to Chris, he would, he kept on going back to his dad and bringing up that um, his ties to helping his dad in, in, with his moving company really helped to learn about work, having a work ethic and getting your hands dirty. Um, so I was just like, "Hey, can I talk to your dad?" And he's like, "Yeah, of course, but let me warn you, he's pretty chatty." Which I thought was funny <laughs> because Chris is pretty chatty, um, uh, in a good way, of course. Um, so I I got Mike on the phone and he was just yeah, so happy to talk about. Chris and all their times together um, in the batting cages and in the moving vans together. They went to New York uh, to do some moving and moving furniture back to California. So they definitely have a pretty special bond together.
0: 2013, really big struggle. Uh, Chris's numbers of class A advanced Lancaster four and two, 7.88 ERA goes down to quad cities, improves a little bit, but definitely not a season that you look back on as is- one of the highlights of your career 2014 is when it really all turns around combined between Class A Advanced Lancaster and Double A Corpus Christi goes 10 and 8 4.04 ERA and then 2015 is the breakout season and this year it seems like pretty much every time somebody was doing something big on the mound from Corpus Christi, I mean, for, for us as writers, I mean, we monitor these leagues, and it seemed like whenever Corpus Christi was getting a good performance, you knew it was probably from Chris Davinsky. And he leads that team into the postseason. Overall number is seven 7-4, 3.01 ERA. But the playoffs are when things get really crazy for him. Um, and, and not just with Corpus Christi, but kind of take us through his road from the end of the regular season. He's Corpus Christi's Pitcher of the Year into the playoffs and then beyond.
2: Yeah, it's funny actually. Towards the end of the season, he started to get tired, and he was like three outs or three outings in a row that he gave up like six or seven runs. And so he took a little break, uh, skipped a couple starts, and then he was just refreshed. And I think you could see that in the playoffs. Obviously, starting in Midland, um, where his parents came to that game, they you know give two runs in six innings to give them the win. Of course, they didn't go on to win the series, but he still. And he thought that his time was over. He thought the year was done. He said goodbye to all of his teammates. And then he gets the call to go to A, which obviously was an exciting moment for him and his family. And then once he gets up there, he's a reliever. Obviously he's a new guy, so he's not going to get the ball necessarily right away. But as a reliever, he pitches like two um, scoreless innings. And so that's going pretty well. And then it gets um, to the A national championship, the, the biggest stage. And he's just thinking, all right, maybe I'll be a reliever again. Who knows? And then, Straley gets called up to Houston and Chris gets the ball. And what he does after that was just amazing. I was there and I still find it hard to believe learning with a no-hitter or a perfect game actually carrying it through six innings.
0: And for a kid like that, I mean, it's so weird. It's not Raul Modesty making his major league debut in the World Series, but it is so strange for somebody, especially at the end of a minor league season to be promoted to a different minor league level. And it really could only happen in this circumstance going double A to triple A because of the triple A championship game and things going a little bit longer in the triple A season. But when you got a chance to talk to him now versus talking to him uh back in September, what do you think his perception about that whole kind of final weird epilogue i guess of the season, not even necessarily the last chapter it was like after the last chapter. How do you think he views that now, and especially with knowing you know that Fresno is probably on the docket for him this year um how huge is that experience for him? Hey,
2: huge, like you said it happened so fast and know he didn't really get a chance to fully like understand what was going on at the time but now that he looks back he still um is in awe of how great of an experience it was and he that he got that opportunity but of course he is a hard worker he knows that he does deserve to pitch at a high level and now he's with fresno most likely to start the season he's going to big league camp and he just now just starting to think about the astros in, in houston and what he really likes about houston is they kind of have that hardworking mentality that he has that, you know, they haven't always been highly touted in the past two years. But here they are scrapping, just fighting their way and they're making it to the playoffs just like he did.
0: This story is a really good one. It's up on MILB.com right now. Uh, Kelsey Hennigan, one of our fantastic writers. So you can follow on Twitter, by the way, at Kelsey, K-E-L-S-I-E, underscore Hennigan, H-E-N-E-G-H-A-N. I would also give you Chris Davinsky's Twitter handle, but he's one of those guys who has, <laughs> like, 19 of the same exact letters. So I'm sure if you search Chris Davinsky, it'll come up for yep. you. But it's Devo, but it's spelled out with, like, nine different e's and o's (laughs) all that um kelsey like we were talking about this is kind of our one of our favorite times of year because we get to be sort of creative and break outside of the standard game stories or organization all-stars or whatever what's some of the other stuff you got coming up you don't have to tease everything because i know sometimes (laughs) stories you know don't come together or or you don't want to necessarily put them out there yet but what else do you got coming up
2: um, one of the things I'm most fascinated about right now are the Phillies, so especially Mark Pell and yeah. what they're doing right now, because obviously when you look at the Phillies, they haven't necessarily had the biggest prospects of the past couple of years, but they've made a few big trades at the deadline and in the off season. So I'm really intrigued with that. So I think that's the biggest thing I'm looking towards to this off season. But like you said, it's a good time to just dig back into those stories that we kinda get a glimpse of during the regular season.
0: Kelsey Hennigan on Twitter at Kelsey underscore Hennigan and one of our uh, really really good features to get 2016 started this is a great story go check it out on the site Kelsey thanks we'll uh, we'll do it again soon
2: yeah thanks for having me
0: again you can follow kelsey on twitter she's at kelsey underscore hennigan and a big thanks to her for joining us that story on chris davinsky is up on the site right now and uh again this is such a fun time of year for us because we get to tackle a lot of really really cool stuff um feature stories and player profiles and prospect q and a's and historical things and uh i like this time of year i like the that's the thing that saves the january and february doldrums It's like well at least we get to write about fun stuff <laughs>
1: that, yeah that's one way to do it it's I mean, it's so much more fun to just to dig into things. Yeah. Um, when it, in terms of the season, games happen every day. There's new things happening all the time, which is obviously exciting in itself. But now you get to just dig so much deeper into guys' stories, into their backgrounds, and get them for a little longer than just 10 minutes after a game. Um, you get them for 15, 20 minutes and get them to be much more open about what they're doing and... What their past is like, what their future will be like, that kind of stuff.
0: No Benjamin Hill this week, so Ben's Cal Ripken esque streak of appearances on the show before the show podcast comes to a close. Um, I, I, I believe that was the longest of any guest in minor league baseball podcasting history. So Ben now will uh, he'll will raise the jersey to the Rafters and we'll see if he can beat it his next time through on consecutive appearances. But no, we will have Ben back next week. There was some news. We've updated you from week to week on the Hartford Yard Goats bar- ballpark situation. It looks Looks as if now the Yard Goats will be on the road until the end of May. That's the latest news today, according to a report by the Hartford Current. Uh, a plan unveiled by new Hartford Mayor Luke Bronin says that the ballpark's target home opener will be May 31st. So, kind of places it into what we've seen over the last couple of seasons with teams that have been waiting for ballparks to get finished. The El Paso Chihuahuas in 2014, they didn't end up hoping at home until April 28th. Uh, Last year was the Biloxi Shuckers. They didn't get to go home until June. So this seems pretty well in line with that. Just going to be a long first couple of months for, uh, for the yard Goats to get the season started.
1: Yeah. And that's just going to push back, you know, the anticipation of, uh, you know, people in Hartford who had been long waiting for this. Well, not long waiting, but you know, waiting with high anticipation uh, for this to finally come, at least now we kind of have a solid date. There's still, you know, this isn't necessarily set in stone yet. Um, you know, every every verb we have to kind of use with this is like may, might, that kind of thing. Uh, still some hoops that it need to jump through and to make this happen, but it now we have a little bit more of a solid plan than what we had previously discussed on the podcast. And uh, yeah, like you said, this is just kind of becoming business as normal, Um, it seems like, when teams are building new ballparks in the last couple of years.
0: As it looks like right now, that would push the Yard Goats to 28 home dates missed to start the season. Uh, But from then on, I mean, they're going to backload the schedule with home games, uh, as we discussed last week with Ben. So that's about it. I think that's it for episode number forty-two of the show. Before the show, did we do we miss anything? Do we miss anything other than Ben?
1: And I, we do I, miss I mean, Ben.
0: We, we miss Ben even when we don't do the podcast. <laughs> like we
1: we miss Ben on Saturdays and Sundays, and just you know. So we miss Ben now. We will miss Ben going miss forward. Miss you, Ben. Until uh, next week.
0: Next week we'll be well, sort of back to normalcy. Sam will still be fighting the cause of freedom and justice in the American way on grand jury duty. You didn't even get jury duty. Now you could say you had grand jury. Duty. Grand jury. That's duty. cool. Yeah,
1: that, that's not an adjective to describe no. type of jury duty. It's more the duty <laughs> of the grand jury. Just for you people at home keeping score, and I hope you're not keeping score of my, my jury duty at I'm- home during this podcast. <laughs>
0: If you are, you really need a life. This is really yeah. – it's like the show before the show after dark though. It's 9.30 out there. I feel like you got to get to sleep big day tomorrow with the grand jury, Sam. Like we have to like – Yeah, I know. I, I dress
1: nice. I I go in button-down shirts. I wear nice pants. I try to like represent myself well with these things. Has and, anybody uh,
0: come up to you and said, didn't I see you on MLB Network a couple weeks ago?
1: No, nobody <laughs> has. It's, it's actually been interesting. We all – nobody knows anything about anybody. Um, oh, that's so cool. So we're all, we're all trying to learn each other, you know – in the grand jury itself. Uh, We keep threatening to play a game of where we're going to guess each other's (laughs) occupations, but it has (laughs)
0: not. So... So Go follow Sam on Twitter for the latest and greatest from New York City grand jury proceedings. No, he's not allowed to talk about it, as we already heard. Nope. But really, go follow Sam on Twitter. He's at Sam milB M-I-L-B. I am at Tyler Mond. Minor League Baseball is at M-I-L-B. And you can find the podcast on iTunes and on the site where you can discover RSS feeds, all of our past episodes archived, and everything else you could want. Rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you are. And uh, that'll do it for this week's edition of the show. One week closer to baseball, everybody. and. Uh, until until next week, uh, more top 10 lists coming out from MLB Pipeline. we got a lot more feature stuff on the way to the site, so uh, enjoy it all, and we'll talk to you then.